everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. During the Ask Me Anything time, or AMA time, with Nick this past Sunday, April 19th, we asked questions about the sermon and he had 90 seconds to answer each one. We couldn't get to all of the questions, so in this episode, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Cole Kyle, our music and worship arts director, are following up on them. They spend half the time talking about the difference between sophistication and wisdom, and how wisdom helps us recognize bad spiritual leadership when we see it. And then they jump into last week's passage in Romans 8 and talk through questions about genuine faith, having assurance of your salvation, and the work of the Spirit in our prayer and in our lives. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We would also love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. It's Nicole here. I am the worship director at High Point. I've got Nick Gibson with me. And we're Hello, gonna everyone. we're gonna go through some of the Ask Me Anything questions that we didn't get to finish last Sunday, which was April 19th, Sunday after Easter. So um let's dive in with the first question. This one is not related to the passage, and then we'll dive into questions that did relate to the passage. So the first question says, a few weeks ago, some prominent Christians, specifically televangelists, were attacked on social media for their response to the current pandemic. I felt like the criticism was warranted, but I didn't want to join in on attacking other Christians. Is there any advice you can give us to separate out the good from the bad spiritual leadership? Okay, so this question doesn't specify what they were being attacked for. Mm-hmm. So personally, I saw them being attacked for two things. One was the belief that they knew why the pandemic was happening and that it had a divine purpose, hmm. right? That it was supposed to chasten us or it was supposed to cause us to repent or something like that. So there's sure. that. And um, uh, N.T. Wright kind of got a good bit of press within the Christian church because he, he published, he had an article published in Time Magazine saying that there is no, like there is no divine purpose in this. Hmm. That, that, um, that there's, that we, that we have a knee-jerk reaction of wanting to know why. But that's sure. actually not the right Christian response was his argument. Now, I, I think there's some profound problems with his argument. Though what he says in the article, if you read it closely, is generally true, but not enough to say. Because... Can I pause yeah, and ask you to to clarify or maybe add a little nuance? Because in in conversations that you and I have had in the past, or even in um, podcast episodes we've done before, we've talked about this idea of wanting to know why there is suffering. And you have said in some moments that that question isn't the right question to ask. So right now, I, I didn't hear any of the um, the criticism, or I didn't hear about the criticism that these different pastors and preachers were getting. So I don't know more about it, but it sounded like you were contradicting yourself, but I don't think you likely were. Can you add a little nuance to that? Yeah, I think so. So I think that um, asking the question, why is there suffering argumentatively toward God or simplistically? So if you think that you can approach the problem of suffering with the sort of simplistic logical analysis, you know, if God is all powerful and all loving, then why is there suffering? Hmm then it's a it's it's a completely just wrong analysis on so on a lot of levels um though it feels very right and usually when we ask it we're suffering and so we're not really thinking as clear very clearly but because we're in pain we think we're thinking very clearly right and so it's a just a bad situation and i encourage people to ha- to not be psychologically naive about what they're doing when they ask questions that way um what nt wright was doing in his article was essentially to say that people like these televangelists will themselves have the same knee-jerk reaction we all have, that when something happens, we want to know why it happened. Mm-hmm. And that even though we are not secularists who believe that everything is simply cause and effect in a inherently purposeless universe, the idea that we can know why God is doing this mm-hmm. without um, what in the Bible would have an accompanying um, creditable prophetic word, like a, a person who is speaking for God and telling us why sure. it's happening. 
is wrong. So, okay. so I think he was trying to play the other side too. Like the televangelist says, this is God telling America to repent or something, or the world sure. to turn to him. Um, and and uh, Wright was saying, we don't know anything about that. What okay. we know is this is happening and that we should proceed with Christian charity in it. Right. However, Piper responded to that. John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, responded to that in a, by saying, that's very unhelpful pastorally the way N.T. Wright talked about it too, because there is also gen- a general teaching of Christian hope. So that they're, they're actually, I mean, we may not know the specific hope God is specifically wanting to give us in COVID-19, but it doesn't mean Christians don't have hope. We have all the hopes we had before mm-hmm. that are based on his promises and his actions and history and what he's done for us and is doing. And we don't have to know how that specifically fits into COVID-19. All of those hopes are still resting on his character and promise. So there's been a lot of that kind of swirling around, but there is always the, the desire to be like, well, is that, I mean, cause it's a, it's a global pandemic, right? And so mm-hmm. people in, in the scriptures, there are pestilences and diseases and things like that, that are used right. judicially by God, either to call people back to repentance or to destroy Israel as enemies when he wanted to, or to punish his own people. And, um, so it's not crazy for people to to imbue this with religious significance, but without the presence of somebody who we think is a credible prophetic voice who God is speaking to, and I have not seen such a person yet, hmm. right? Um, I forget the guy who is the head of Capital Chaplaincies, but he, he wrote something recently that there are multiple kinds of wrath in the Bible, and some are just sort of like the wrath of cause and effect. And so you could say, so part of this is people, part of this is the very sophisticated secular public has a very unsophisticated understanding of Christian doctrine. And also so do many televangelists, right? And so what people lose sight of is the fact that Christianly speaking, God um, does judge nations in scripture and nations must be judged because they can't be judged in the final judgment. You can Mm. only judge individuals in the final judgment because nations are not, they're not persons. And so the only place God can judge nations, in fact, I can't remember if it was one of the founding fathers, I can't remember if it was George Mason or if if it was um, I think Benjamin Rush. It was one, I think it was one of those two who said during the constitutional debate about slavery that America had to end slavery and the sooner the better because God must judge nations. Hmm. And because this was a national sin, America had to end it as fast as possible because God do, did judge nations temporally and would judge America. And in the in in succeeding generations, many people thought that the Civil War was God's judgment. In fact, um, I think it was in his second inaugural, Lincoln basically said that hmm. that if God had to wring all of the blood and wealth out of this country through the Great Civil War, then we would just have to say that He's just. Hmm. Right. So even American presidents and the founders of our constitution without a present prophetic word still felt like they could make inferences sure. in relationship to God's wrath and how we should respond to it through the workings of his providence. And so if we already knew America was denying God and not walking with him and, and if we already knew that God uses such things providentially, then we could infer that how we should probably respond to this is with repentant hearts. Sure. Right? I think that's perfectly reasonable within a Christian framework. That's different than saying as though you are the prophet of God, this is God right. doing X, Y, Z, and therefore right. blah, blah, blah. Which obviously to secular people looks ridiculous, partly because of their own bigotries too, not just not just ours. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So the, the, second, the second thing I saw televangelists criticized for is their desire to continue to raise money while the, this is happening. So I, I can't remember which televangelist it was who uh, the guardian did an article on him saying, make sure the one thing you need to, you need to make sure you don't do during the pandemic is to stop tithing mm-hmm. specifically to his, I mean, he was specifically talking to his ministry about his ministry probably, but really he just said, just, just don't stop tithing. Right. Um, the, the funny irony about that article was that when you scroll to the, if you read the whole article in the guardian and you scroll, scroll to the bottom of it, it's the box where the guardian asks you for money <laughs> during the COVID-19 crisis. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so you yeah. scroll down and you're like, and there's like this humiliating paragraph at the very end, which is supposed to show us how ridiculous religious people are, especially the televangelists of the world, because they say, Hey, 
don't stop giving us money. And right. then literally the very next thing on the webpage is a big block that says America has a big choice to make. It's really important that they get good news and that our voice is heard. Therefore, shouldn't you give money right now to the guardian? Yeah. Right? And yeah. it's just, it's a classic blindness of like, we all think our message is important. All messages that go out usually require some kind of funding. And usually you have to ask the people who already think your message is worthwhile to fund it, even in difficult times. Mm-hmm. And so it it's, it, you don't even need to be religious or believe anything about God to think that a televangelist is going to say that you should keep giving money for televangelism. Mm-hmm. And that a newspaper is going to ask you to keep giving money to get news out, right? And so it's just kind of hip. I, I in my, I, I, the way I see it is just hypocrisy. You know, the reason why right. the televangelist is ridiculous to ask for money during COVID nineteen is because you already think he's ridiculous, right? And because you already think he's ridiculous, when he acts like he would normally act during a crisis, you think it's even more ridiculous, and so you say so. Mm-hmm. without actually making the argument, you just say it and you assume everybody already knows it's ridiculous, right? It's kind of like sarcasm. And so I think even though I think most, I personally think most televangelists are ridiculous mm-hmm. and I, I don't like the way they talk. I don't think their theology is correct. I think some of them are heretics. I think, I think some of them aren't even Christians. But I still try to, I'm still trying to be careful about what is just my distaste for them as opposed to my disagreement with them. Right. As opposed to just my bigotry towards them. Yeah. Right. And I think, I think in that guardian article, it was just a lot of bigotry mostly. Yeah. Um, instead of them just saying, we disagree with these people, but that's not interesting. Right. To say, right. I mean, it's this, it's this, it's the sneering that makes us feel good. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, um, yeah, if you already think that television should be attacked for raising money because they're raising money for something that's false. Right, if if they're like a health wealth gospel person who who is actually right. teaching false theology, or if you're a non Christian and you just think evangelism is teaching a falsehood, then you're not for them getting money ever, and so you're even more for them not getting it now. When you think right. it should be going to so many other temporal things, right? So, yeah. So in both cases, I think that the televangelists are probably acting foolish and ignorantly and wrongly, and in a way that I would very much disagree with. Probably mm-hmm. most of them. And also, I think that the people who are critiquing them are doing so foolishly, ignorantly, and wrongly. And I would disagree with most of them also. Mm-hmm. So so the second or the latter part of this question, I think it's helpful to hear you kind of show how you parse out those things when you're looking at a particular situation. Can you give maybe one or two principles into how one might do that on their own? How one might sort out the good and bad spiritual leadership on their own? Good and bad spiritual leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, listen to my sermon this coming Sunday out of the first <laughs> chapter of First Thessalonians. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that Jesus and the scriptures make evident as much as possible what we should imitate in people. Yeah. And you should look for that. Um, for example, in the second chapter of First Thessalonians, he said, we never use flattery and there was never a pretense of greed in us. Yeah. You know that very well, right? That's well, that's something that ex- that's how examples behave, and that's how those are the kinds of things we should imitate. So, if you see in a televangelist or a news person, um, so when you when you sneer at somebody else to make your audience happy, that's flattery. It's a form of flattery mm-hmm. because you're saying, "Oh, aren't we fabulous? Aren't we who think so sophisticated? Aren't we so fabulous?" And and pl- in the Guardian and Fox News and almost every news outlet does a certain amount of that flattery. Right, it's hard not to do because you want pe- everybody wants people to like them. So part of it is just like reading scripture and knowing what we should imitate in others, and, and looking for that in the people we imitate and see as examples. But also, I think it's just being a student of human nature, knowing mm-hmm. that like humility is hard, and so mm-hmm. pride is easy. And when you're proud, you think you're better than other people. And of course, everybody thinks they're much more too sophisticated to think they're better than other people. But sophist- listen, I've lived in Madison now for ten years among people who think they're very sophisticated. I cannot discern any more sophistication here than in Panama City, Florida, hmm. which was like redneck central. It was like Southern Alabama. Right. There's literally no discernible increase in sophistication other than vocabulary. I mean, hmm. of soul, like are people more humble? Are they really more learned? Are they really more interested in, I, I don't see it. I mean, I'm looking for it. 
but I don't see it, right? There, there's a little bit more education, but there's a lot of educational produced foolishness mm-hmm. and a lot of like rejection of what you know in your soul about reality and trying to explain it away. So yeah, so I think that being a student of human nature, knowing how selfishly ambitious we are, how vain our conceit is, how much we want to pat our, you know, pat our own egos and flatter others to like us more. And like just all the deadly sins. I mean, like literally just study Christianity. I mean, it it is ignorance. I mean, in some ways it is, it's, it's not educational ignorance. It's ignorance of soul. It's ignorance of anthropology, what human beings are. It's ignorant, uh, ignorance of basic, the rooted truths of human existence. It's, it's Mm -hmm. an ignorance of wisdom. Yeah. That allows us both to listen to the sneering of some of these media sources and the foolish, ridiculous nonsense of some of these health, wealth, gospelish sorts of televangelists. I think some something that you were talking about in here that was really helpful for me is be, is that in some of these instances, as we grow in our uh, as we grow in our Christ likeness and as we grow in having the mind of Christ, there to me at least it seems like they're almost layered. Like they're the more obvious ways that you might see greed in somebody, or you might see their cynicism, their their willingness to. Yeah push someone else down in order to get ahead. But then you get to more layered, like, you know, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing type situations where you've got to be able to see a little bit more the, like, the motivation behind certain comments or certain um, actions. Like, I'm thinking of some different authors where, like, I've heard – their quotes of theirs. And I've thought like something isn't sitting right with me in what they're saying. And I can't quite figure it out, but I feel like I, there's something about it that doesn't sit. And then I, I can read a little more and I can think a little more and then I can kind of see what that might be. But I think that's an important thing to not just, because for me, I had a lot of friends who were listening to these authors and it took courage in me to be willing to say, I don't think it's quite right. And I think sometimes it's hard to do that when we're talking about spiritual leadership, especially when they're people who are really influential and especially when they're people who do make you feel good about yourself and make, even if it's yeah. like the self-help world, you know? Um, yeah. Cause I think you're talking about like Jen Hatmaker and the girl wash, don't girl wash, don't wash your face person. What I forget her name, but girl like, wash your face. Uh, Rachel Hollis. Yeah. 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 And but similarly, like th- that stuff's as bad as the televangelists or this or the guardian. I mean, mm-hmm. like it's just it's it's like it, it's truthy. Like it sounds like it's really onto something, and it, it attaches it to your something deep in your primal self because yeah. it's getting at like your sense of insecurity or something, and really offering you a way forward. Um, I, I actually, I honestly, I, I would put Brene Brunel, Brene Brown, Brown, Brene mm-hmm. Brene Brown in that category. But with with her. It's, I think it's different because she's doing research. And mm-hmm. so the fact that I think she, I think she's myopic, like I, th- I think she's too narrowed in her view and that's what's confusing her. I, th- I don't think that that's really to her detriment as a scientist. Like she's studying shame yeah. from a psychological perspective. The fact that she doesn't admit to the theological cure and that therefore that screws her view up some. That, that's for me that's way different than somebody says i'm a christian absolutely here's my christian self-help and it's like right. very not christian and it actually yeah. ruins the dynamic of christian belief yeah for the self-helpy thing to work i think that right. that's a terrible terrible thing because what i just started Rachel hollis from the health wealth gospel she just says it different because what i started to realize was that it wasn't what i finally came to understand was that it wasn't based in grace that at least the way that it was interpreted by a lot of the people around me, that it was a lot of like, you, you do all this work for yourself. And I, I, I realized like, if you lose that piece of the gospel, you've lost a core of what you're believing in, in terms of what is going to make you right with God. And so, um, it's also sometimes a rejection of sovereignty, right? Like, mm -hmm. like part of Hollis's thing is I'm going to imagine my future. I'm going to go get it. Well, bull crap you are right. Like, I mean, this that that's that's like, like one of the things people hate about the health wealth gospel people is poor people wishing they were rich send these people their dimes and get poor while one guy gets rich and so it works for that one guy and he gets rich with his health wealth gospel and everybody else gets poor. Same yeah. thing with like the Rachel Hollis types. They're they're like 
literally they make their money off of telling people they're successful. They become more successful and everybody else doesn't Yeah, because people don't control their own providences. That's the, that's the rea- the sad reality is, I mean, there used to be a hymn that like the guy who's the king and the guy who keeps the door, God has placed them both. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there's a, there's, there's a version of that that's too deterministic. It, that's totally true. There's like, there's a version of that where like, it's almost like karma. Like if you're poor, God made you poor. Right. Yeah. But there's also this idea that like, I really am in full control of my life, which is not true. Right. And the idea with that sort of ambitious self-help people that that is true is they, they believe in the God of cognitivist, cognitivist psychology, which is, which can't save you. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's not Christian. Mm-hmm. And Christianity is literally in the first place a religion for failures. Yeah, yeah. And uh-huh. and you can't lose that. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it always hangs with you the fact that if God were not gracious, you would be nothing but a disappointment, even yeah. in your greatest victories. Right. And it's because of his love and his and and his graciousness towards you that you do anything. Mm-hmm. And also it loses the whole theology of resurrection through dying. Mm-hmm. Like I can't discern any way of the cross in any of this kind of writing. Yeah. It, and so it's nonsense. Like if you can't say it, there, like there's this great um, Lutheran satire video where he puts, he takes um, paintings of the martyrs and he has them say, Oh yeah. Some I've, of Joel Olstein's like most yes, self-help. You've shown this quotes. to me. It's like, it's and, and I'm actually cringy. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a huge Joel Olstein basher because I, I think that he is, I actually think that a lot of his writing in Sunday sermons are bait and switch where he's trying to get people interested in Christianity and what faith can really do for you in improving your life. And then I think he's trying to make it as biblical as he can on the back end. And as somebody who's ministered in a bait and switch church, when I was in Florida, I really felt like my church was kind of a bait and switch church. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a, some respect for that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a Joel Osteen hater, but when you, when you take some of Joel Osteen's quotes and you put them like with like a guy dying from being yeah. shot with many arrows at five feet and he's like bleeding to death. And he says like, you know, you can have a great life if you just believe it, you know, yeah. you're uh-huh. kind of like, yeah, there's something that's not entirely Christian about that quotation. Yes. You know what I mean? If when yeah. thought of by itself, at least. Right. So right. yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, but I think, I, so, and so what I'm saying is that comes from really knowing the gospel. Right, exactly. Like the people who, honestly, and I know this sounds weird, but like people who read their Bibles every day, not legalistically, but graciously and seek to be taught by God and they want they want to get a heart of wisdom so badly, they know that it's the only way that the, the simple person they am can mm-hmm. be made wise. Because the difference, see, here's the difference. And I know this is a, this is a um, in some ways an unhelpful dichotomy, but it, this is just meant to be a categorical dichotomy. Okay, you can see wisdom as the opposite of sophistication. Sophistication is I want to do what I want to do, but I'm not going to look stupid doing it. So I'm going to find a much more sophisticated way to really do whatever I want to do. Right? Wisdom is I'm wrong. I'm stu- I'm stupid. <laughs> like I don't yeah, know anything. Yeah. And I need to be taught from zero to know what I should even want mm-hmm. and then how I should live it out because the world is it is it is as it is. Yeah. And I need to I need to conform myself to God's creation and his purposes. It, because one of the things that, I, that really drives me nuts about sophisticated cultures is that um, they're just as sinful. They're just yeah. so much more deluded about even their own intentions. Mm-hmm. Like I would much rather talk to some guy who's smoking weed and drinking gin on the pier in Panama city, trying to throw a net on cruising mullet in the water so he can have a fish fry. Then your average Madisonian who like the, cause that guy's like, yeah, I do bad stuff. Yeah. Like he's not cause he, and he's not sophisticated. He, he does bad stuff and he knows that he shouldn't do it. He knows his conscience reproaches him for it and he does it anyway. Mm-hmm. And he knows he's wrong. Yeah. As opposed to someone who has conformed their conscience to their behavior so that they don't feel bad anymore for when they do it and they feel completely secure in their self-justification for their behavior, right? Mm-hmm. But they're just as bigoted. They're just as mean. They're just as self-involved. They're such, just as vain as anybody else. But if you talk to them about it, they're like, oh, you don't understand. You're so, you're so simple-minded. Mm-hmm. And what the Bible calls that is searing your conscience. Yeah. You burn your conscience so it shuts up and then you fill yourself with delusional self-justifications. That's what Romans 1 is all about. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. And people, that's one of the reasons why people really hate that chapter. Yeah. And other places, but the Bible's full. The Bible is full. I, um, is full of references to self delusion, uh, mm-hmm. uh, specifically about people who claim to be believers, but really yeah. by everybody. Yeah. You know, and so for me, um, vigilance against self delusion has to be one of the biggest themes of working through our inner lives. Yeah. Because God says it's everywhere. I remember you preaching a sermon a while back, um, and I don't know if there was a particular person you had in mind or if it was just uh, the type of people that you who were at your church in Panama City, but you were talking, mm-hmm. you gave an example of a guy who like wasn't, you know, PhD educated, was was mm-hmm. a simple person, but I mean, he knew his Bible. And so if you came to him with something, some thought, he'd be like, nope, that's not in the Bible. Show me it in the Bible. And you were talking about this idea, like he wasn't sophisticated, but he was so yeah. wise. And that was really motivating yeah. to me that I was like, I, I want to be more like him than oh, this yeah. other thought. Yeah. Actually, in that case, I actually did have a, David Phillips is the guy's <laughs> okay. name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. he, okay. So I just want to make, because the way you said it made him sound a li- little bit less wise than he actually was. Because he wouldn't say, if it's not in the Bible, I don't believe it. But he knew his Bible so well, he would know if the Bible actually said something that contradicted what you were saying. Yeah. So he he would know if it, that wasn't consistent with the teaching of the scriptures. Sure, yeah. And he would just smell that out and he just knew it. And yeah. so he had an education to compare everything to. So he didn't have to have a, a comprehensive bibliographic PhD kind of education. He only had to know, he, he knew that body of information and he knew when things came in contact with it and contradicted it to be careful, mm-hmm. to sniff at that a little bit more. And yeah. oftentimes if you do, it's very obvious why it's wrong. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah, it was just, yeah, he just read his Bible for 40 years. Carefully. Yeah. And not legalistically. Like, this guy was not a legalist. He wasn't like, I can use the Bible to hurt you. Mm -hmm. Or I can, because a lot of people just use the Bible, like, like sophisticated secular people use their education. Sure. The the secular atheist will use his education to justify his sin. And a lot of Christians, or or maybe Christians in name only, Mm -hmm. will use stuff they've read in the Bible to justify themselves. Right. And to cover over their sins. Yeah. Right? It's not like... Sin's delusion is not a um, is no respecter of religious professions. I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's pivot now. We've spent a good bit on that. We're going to switch over to the passage that you preached from in Romans. This was Romans chapter eight, and I will read starting from verse thirty-five through verse thirty-nine, and then we'll answer a few questions about that. So, starting in verse thirty-five. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right. So the first part, let's talk per, uh, yeah, let's talk first about the, um, the phrase through Christ, and then also living in the mind of the spirit. So the first question says, can you speak more about those two phrases leading to a a life, leading to life versus a salvation based on works? It seems like the reasoning is that genuine faith will live in the mind of the spirit. Thus, this is more of a testing of your faith. Yeah. Um, so this is one of, so first of all, I want to say this subject is one of the most difficult ones in Christian theology and it's, yet it's also one of the most vital ones. So there's GK Chesterton said that there's like four or five paradoxes in Christian theology that it kind of seems like they, they somehow like go against each other, but they, but they somehow also worked together. And so the idea that we're saved by faith alone, apart from works and that works are integral to our salvation mm-hmm. are both stated in the Bible, right? The Bible literally says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And the context of that in Leviticus, but really the context it gets used in, in First Peter and in Hebrews, is not referring to justification. It's referring to character-based behavioral holiness, that without godliness, no one will see the Lord. Meaning that if you think that you can be saved apart from works, and then... That's it. There are never any works. 
you're just saved. That that is one of those doctrines of self-deception. And it's important mm-hmm. to recognize that. And yet we are saved completely apart from works, meaning that works do not enter into the dynamic that saves us. Okay. And the reason for that is, is that um, what salva- is that salvation does something right? Mm-hmm. It, it makes, it creates a change. It, it actually does something. And so, um, for example, it, it, in the book of Ezekiel, it says about the new covenant that God would take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And it's, I think it's Ezekiel 36, 36. And that's, that means that like you were, you were like dead in a way, like in the human heart, the, the realm of the human heart, there was a deadness in you that was incapable of doing certain things. And that that's going to be removed in a, a, like a, a life is going to be put in you. And also in Ezekiel, there's the Valley of the dry bones, right? Where you've got, mm-hmm. you've got literally bones and God says, speak to the dry bones and tell them to come alive. And he's like, um, I'm not sure that works. Right. And, <laughs> but then he does it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then God acts and the, the dry bones like come together and they get tendons and muscles and, and they like come alive as human beings. Right. And so like, human action is accompanied by divine power, right? That Ezekiel has to say, come alive. And then God makes them come alive. Right. But it also recognizes that like when God redeems, he turns dry bones into living beings. Right. And so what do you think that's supposed to do in you? Right. It's supposed to do something. Mm -hmm. Right. And so one of the things that, um, that has to happen in Christian salvation is you have to, that's part of faith, right? Part of faith is, you have to interact with the truth by believing it, right? You're supposed to believe the truths. Mm-hmm. And then in believing them, you sort of, you begin to interact with them, right? And so in both, so in Romans, there's two places that specifically talk about the life of the mind in relationship to this. One is in Romans 8, where it talks about having the mind of the spirit rather than the mind of the flesh, right? And the second is in Romans 12, where it says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, knowing what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So in that case, the world or all that stands opposes to God in creation that hasn't come under his rule. That's what the world is, right? He's like, that world has a pattern to it, a way, a culture, a way it does stuff. And your mind will naturally conform to it. So you'll think it's thoughts, you'll act in its way. He's like, but instead what has to happen is you need to have a transformation in mind rather than a con than a conforming of mind. And that should be according to God's will, which ultimately in your heart will be, you'll see it to be good. It will please you and you'll recognize that it's perfect, right? That transformation, that switch has to happen. Same thing in Romans eight, right? You have to, you have to give up on the mind of the flesh and you have to take on the mind of the spirit. And when that happens, then the spirit operates freely in and through you. Because until that happens, you're not a willing participant in the work of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. So you could say you're a willing participant in justification. I believe in Jesus. I receive salvation. Right. Okay. Yes. But saving faith requires you to be a participant in the whole of the gospel, the message, right? So you, which includes the gift of the spirit so that you can put to death indwelling sin and you can be more than a conqueror through Christ. Does that make sense? So every, so you, God demands that you conquer through Christ. So mm-hmm. it's it's gracious in its action because everything you do, you do through Christ, either through Christ himself or by means of something the death and resurrection of Christ has gotten for you, mm-hmm. like the presence of the Spirit, the creation of the local church, the whatever, right. the inscripturation of the Bible, the all kinds of things, right? And these things together give you the tools to succeed, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is one of the reasons why some of the Christian allegory books are really helpful for people. Like if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, for example, it was the, at one point it was the second most read book in the Western world. Hmm. In America, I think it was third to Fox's Book of Martyrs. But I think it, because that book was so popular among Puritans, um, for reasons I won't go into right now. But it, I mean, like it's one of the most influential books in the history of the West. It's compl- almost entirely forgotten now because of our nominalism. But it talks about how like this this person Christian goes from the city of the world to the city of God, and God is with him all the way. And mm-hmm. all of his successes are gracious successes. Right. And yet all of them are laborious. It, but yet in every, in every success, it is not his labor, but his belief. It's his faith hmm. that delivers him. 
from one to the other, either by directly calling on God or by trusting in God in the midst of some trial or by going where God tells him to go and so on. Right. And I think that that's, I think that's a helpful way to think about it. So in that sense, I think one of the things we need to recognize is if you want to say, okay, well, am I saved? Or like, am I, am I being a Christian or like, am I a Christian? Okay. The question is, I mean, Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist. So he believed that if you were saved, you were saved. Okay. Mm-hmm. He believed in the perseverance of the saints, but he said pastorally, he would say to people, quit thinking about that. Be saved today. Just be saved. Like, yeah. Focus on the fact that you're going to walk with Christ today. Hmm. And if you do, you'll be walking in God's grace and you'll sense the assurance that you belong to God. Yeah. But but don't, don't, don't get so focused on, on like, well, isn't it already done? Yes. It's like, yes. And yet like you, it has to be real in you. And like your assurance doesn't come from the fact that like in, in one sense, in one sense, people want to take their assurance from something that's already done. Right. And so they want to say, well, I accepted Jesus. So I'm going to heaven. That's it. And the answer is, ah, oh, yeah, but there's a lot of self-deception verses in the Bible, right? Like, yeah. like, um, second Corinthians 13, um, see and test whether or not you're in the faith. And, uh, like, uh, Matthew seven, where Jesus says, many will come in on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these amazing things? And he'll say, I never knew you depart from me to everlasting fire. Mm-hmm. And so th- Jesus intentionally was trying to cause us to second guess our presumption of our salvation while simultaneously seeking everywhere to assure us of the graciousness of our salvation. Mm-hmm. Right. And now from a philosophical perspective, you go like, well, that sounds very contradictory. <laughs> well, it, it, it's because it is kind of, but the reason is because, and I'll say this for the 570th time, the means and arguments of the Bible are often psychological in their, in their nature rather than philosophical, right? Cause they're pointed at human beings that are a certain way, right? Human beings are prone to wanting to presume and then being lazy. So if you have a creature that wants to presume that it's already saved and then be lazy about it, but then also is very prone to being legalistic, how, how do you pastor such a creature? Well, like you have to say, listen, you are saved in Christ, by Christ alone, by nothing that you do. Your legalism is completely undermined, right? And there's a joy in the fact that you can be saved by grace and grace alone. And yet, because of the presence of self-deception, because of your presumption and laziness, and all, right, you can be lost without holiness. No one will see the Lord. Right. But if you say, well, am I going to be, am I holy enough? Well, the answer is, is that your judicial holiness comes from Christ himself. Mm-hmm. The question is not, are you holy enough? The question is, are you in Christ? Right. Right. And the answer to that is, you're like, well, well I accepted Jesus. Well, that's actually, you know, that, yes. But what it says in Romans 8 is that if you are, if you embrace the mind of the flesh and reject the mind of the spirit, you're not a child of God. It explicitly mm-hmm. says that. Mm-hmm. It says that if you live in the flesh, meaning you embrace the life of the flesh and the mind of the flesh and reject the mind of the spirit, it says you will die. That's not a news flash that your 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 physical life on earth is going to end. It's a claim that you're going to go to hell, like that you're going to find yourself under judgment and the life of death you live now will be confirmed in ultimate death in God's judgment. That's what it means. It means you're in the way of death in all of its meanings. And so when you have many, many passages in the Bible like that, you have to understand that we are saved by grace and yet, to be assured that we're saved, grace has to issue forth and do things in us, right? To what Calvinists call the evidences of grace. So the way Reformed people would look at it is they'd say, are you saved or are you deluded, right, mm-hmm. is the question, right? Because if you, are you saved or not, the first question is, well, have you accepted Jesus? Do you confess Christ, right? And if the answer is no, then the first thing is, well, then you need to be converted. You need to confess Christ as Savior and ask him to forgive your sins and be your king and savior and f- and hide yourself in his protection and salvation, right? And if you refuse to do that, we know you're not saved, right? If you do that, that's great, right? But if then later on you're like, but, I'm, but am I saved? You're like, well, okay, now the question is, are you saved or are you deluded? Mm-hmm. So now the question is not, did you confess Jesus? But the question is, has the fact that you've confessed Jesus done anything? Mm-hmm. Is there evidence of the grace of God, right? Is there evidence that in in sincere faith and in the cooperation of God, God is changing you, right? Which is the assumption everywhere, right? In First John, in Hebrews, and it's always like, well, right. the gospel will change you, like you'll know. 
right. you'll change. Like, and sometimes that's just like you're hoping for heaven, right? Or, mm-hmm. or you're you're sick of the curse, mm-hmm. or you adore God, you love God. Or in First John, it's like it's um, that you confess Christ, you're falling out of love with the world, and you love other Christians. Mm-hmm. Those are the three tests he gives there. There are more than that, right? The mind of the Spirit, transformation in the mind of Christ, loving others. There's a thousand of them, and you don't have to. Be, it's not like you have to be perfect, but there, there. If there has to be evidence of grace, if there's no evidence of the grace of God operating in your life, then there's no evidence the grace of God is operating in your life, and salvation mm-hmm. is by grace, and you have obviously not opened yourself to that. So, the, and so yeah. what that gets to is what's the solution? Well, the solution is to turn to Jesus and to immerse yourself in the operation of grace, not to try to do better. Uh-huh. That's why it's not a salvation by works. Be like, well, then you're saying you have to, I have to do works. That's salvation by works. No, because the remedy is if you, if you look at your life and there's no evidence of grace, you don't try to do better. You turn to Christ. Right. If you're embracing the mind of the flesh, you embrace the mind of the spirit by faith. Right. If there's no holiness, you embrace the Holy Spirit in His direction by faith. Right. The, the solution is always faith, and if the solution is always faith, then the salvation is not by works. Yeah. Even though it must produce works. To be real. I think it's worth <laughs> saying at this point that um, if there's somebody who's like wrestling with this particular thing, this concept, a lot of people do. And that just because you were able to clearly over like, you know, 15 minutes (laughs) talk through it, it doesn't mean that it isn't a challenge to continually let go. I mean, I was, as you were talking, I was specifically thinking about how lots of, um, there's a lot of talk out there about how we're more anxious than we've ever been as a culture before. Mm -hmm. And this is an an anxiety inducing concept that you're talking about. And so- I think for for the listener to who is walking through this to recognize that it it requires continuing to remind yourself of what is true, continue like memorizing passages of scripture that talk of these things, both sides of it, both the grace and the devotion, um, so that when you're feeling the anxiety, you can come back to the grounding truth of the scripture that we know and the person of Jesus that we know from scripture. Yeah. I, I think I think the the you can also ask questions like is is repentance present in your life? Yeah, right. Because you're not you're not God, and if you if you're not delusional, you'll be bumping into sin a lot, and yeah. you'll you and you'll be repenting of it. You'll be like, God, I'm sorry I did that again. That's terrible. Like I can't believe. And if you if you are sensible in the in your heart of the mercy of God, mm-hmm. pretty regularly, then your heart's probably then you're there's probably faith operating there. Right. Right. Because, but if, if you're not, if you're not sensible, cause like, even if you, if you're like, well, I have faith, I, I, right. Okay. Your faith stinks. <laughs> right. I mean, look at almost anybody's faith, even the people you respect, our faith stinks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even like even being saved by grace through faith, it's still salvation under the mercy of God. It's right. so it's merciful that he counts our faith as faith. Mm-hmm. And he counts it as an acceptable means by which he imputes righteousness in Christ to us. Right. right? But, but like part, even in salvation by faith, people still can fall into a salvation of works because their works is their faith. Yeah. And they're trying to show like how great a work their faith is. <laughs> and it's not, it's pretty awful. Yeah. So some people really even struggle with salvation by faith because they they even understand faith wrong. Right. Yeah. Um, so you know what I mean. Yeah. So I I just think and sometimes it's better to recognize that you're saved by Christ, mm-hmm. and that what faith is is you clinging to Him. Yeah. In every way, and to the extent to which you're saved by Christ because you're clinging to Christ in every way, adoring Him and loving Him and accepting His truths and responding to His people and confessing His name and repenting when you fail him and all these sorts of things to the extent to which you focus on Christ, it's much more likely that your faith is going to have vibrancy. The more you, you focus on your faith, mm-hmm. the more likely something's amiss. Yeah. It's kind of like when it's kind of like when you're, you're a couple and you keep, keep talking about your marriage. Well, our marriage, this and our marriage, that, and you know, our marriage is in a marriage, marriage, marriage right. Instead of like my husband mm-hmm. or my wife, like when people start talking about their marriages a lot, my marriage, my marriage, I, I go, oh, 
that can often portend negative things. Yeah. You don't want the marriage to be an object so much as a conduit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so sometimes, sometimes the demon is deeper than we think in these questions about faith. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's easier to talk about your faith than to adore the Christ. Mm-hmm. Because when you're talking about your faith, you're still just talking about you. Yeah. And you start adoring the Christ, you're in a terrifying position of putting, coming face to face with the living God, which is yeah. very uncomfortable. Well, and I think too, I mean, related to that, it is a difficult thing to receive grace. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a, it's not easy. And so if you're on the performance, if you're on the performance yes. <laughs> wagon or the approval wagon. Right, which I'm on both mm-hmm. of those wagons. <laughs> yeah. So, most people are. Yeah. Me too. So it's hard. It's hard to just receive grace. And it's easier to think, well, I'm measuring up in these particular ways. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so I I think I think then then the answer to that question is through Christ is how you're supposed to be a conqueror. So you're like, how am I supposed to conquer this? The answer is through Christ. Yeah. Everything about Jesus, apply that. Mm-hmm. Apply that. Try to obey it. Try to understand it. Try to live it out. Try to focus your mind upon it and your heart upon it and embrace it and reject that which isn't of Christ. And and through that, you will have the character in the sufferings of the curse to be a conqueror. That is to look like Jesus in your sufferings. That's what being a conqueror means. Right? Yeah. And then to be vindicated by God in the way God wants to vindicate you in the timing he wants to vindicate you. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. We, we didn't need God to vindicate Jesus an hour before he died. Yeah. That would not have been good. But three days after he was dead was fantastic. Yes. Yeah. You know. Okay. I'm going to move us to the final question. So, but Nick, I'm going to have you explain it slightly because even I got a little confused as I was reading through this, but it's, it's somebody asking you to clarify something that you meant or something that you said about the spirit interceding to the father. Oh yeah. 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 This is, this will be a little wonky if you weren't the person who asked this, (laughs) but in, in, uh, in Romans 8, 26 and 27, it says this in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know how we should pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes on behalf of the saints according to God's will. And the questioner said, in one of the things you you talked about, you said that the, that the Spirit wasn't interceding for us to God, but was interceding sort of like to us for us, right? And he's like, doesn't this say that the Spirit intercedes intercedes to God for us. Like, aren't you wrong, Nick? And the answer is, if I said that, then yes, I am. Right? Uh, so in in one sense, I would say it says more than just that the Spirit speaks to God on our behalf, God the Father on our behalf. I think it says more that the Spirit is doing something in us to give our groans expression mm-hmm. and to make us able to speak to God. And so I think the point part of the point of this passage is that the Holy Spirit intercedes in our hearts and is helping us pray as we ought to, and is also expressing God's will back to the Father by means of his Spirit. So I think that two things are happening, I think is what I'm trying to say. One is, yes, the Spirit is speaking back to God his own will, and so therefore aligning us with God's will and keeping us from the blasphemous natural utterances that would, would normally come out of us being under the curse and talking to God. Right, because it says we really don't know how we should pray when we feel this way. Yeah, and so the Spirit does so, and when we even sort of in our spirits groan toward God, the Spirit is speaking to God in a way. So even if you don't have like the gift of speaking in tongues, just the expression of your inner pain, the the Holy Spirit sort of speaks in tongues in a way, like he he's speaking in a way that you're not forming words for and speaking to God on your behalf is what this mm-hmm. says, right? Mm-hmm. But what it what I'm saying what it also does is that it affects you. It doesn't just give you words to say, because in theory, the Holy Spirit could come into your conscious mind and say, say this. Sure. That's not what happens. What it says is the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, right? And intercedes. And and so that when God searches your heart, he finds the word of the Spirit there. So that the Spirit is not just speaking to God out of your heart, 
but the place he embeds himself is in your heart, which means two things. One, um, you might not know how to perceive that. Mm-hmm. You might not like feel the quote, feel the presence of the spirit when he's doing that. Right. You might just, because, because he's not giving you words, right? Cause mm-hmm. most of us want God to give us words to say to God. Most of us would love it if God told us yeah. exactly what to pray yes. word wise. And what this is saying is that's actually not how it works. That's not how the Holy spirit works. He works in the heart and speaks back to God through our groans and our pain and our feelings even. And then we have to turn it into words the best we can. But God is in God. The spirit is involved in that. So, yeah. So yes, this is saying that the spirit speaks to God, the father on our behalf, interceding for us, almost like he's praying for us, mm-hmm. but he's also re- It says he's resident in our heart because when God searches our heart, that he finds the spirit there. Mm-hmm. So that there's also a deeper work of the spirit in us going on is what I'm trying yeah. to say. Also. Yeah. So I may have said that indelicately or wrong, completely wrongly somewhere that led to this question. Yeah. Um, just a quick thing too. Um, I haven't listened to all of it yet, but Nick, a couple on episode 183 of this podcast, you and Adam Mabry, your friend, talk about the Holy Spirit. So if you are, we, we talked a lot about the spirit today, but, um, if you want more and you haven't listened to that episode yet, you can go there. Yeah. That episode is a little bit wonky, but, um, have you listened to it yet? I have started it, but it's, it's I'm not all the way through yet. It's sometimes hard for me to know how, how, uh, how broad the appeal will be for some of those. But I, yeah, I, I think Adam was 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 good on that. So yeah, so far I've yeah, really maybe, enjoyed uh, it. If you want, yeah, if you want to hear more about the Holy Spirit, that yeah, then the pre- a couple episodes preceding this one will, will be your ticket. Great. All right. Well, that's everything that we have. Thanks for listening. We miss you. We are excited to be together as a church. Sometimes I think about it, what it'll be like the first Sunday back when we're you know, leading worship or preaching and there's a full sanctuary. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Yeah. We're probably still not going to be allowed to touch each other. (laughs) Probably not, but, but it'll, at least we'll see each other. All right. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.